At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to look deeper into 1 Peter, tuning into our current series, Unshakable, Steadfast Hope in an Unpredictable World. Join us as we allow God's Word to shape us and renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the gospel. If you have a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to open it with me to the book of 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter, if you're at home right now, and you have a Bible, we're going to be in the first chapter of First Peter. Now, if you don't have a Bible, uh, but you have a device, you could hop along and follow uh, that way. Uh, but I'd uh, encourage you to mark this book as we're going to uh, spend the next several weeks together kind of studying through it in a series that we're calling uh, Unshakable, which I'm really excited for. So, My freshman year of college at Kent State University, I was registered for a class called Cultural Anthropology. At the time, uh, I was uh, an education major with a focus on social studies, and so this was just one of the courses that you had to take as part of kind of the curriculum, uh, and you know, I was signed up, ready to go. Um, I was still adjusting at that point to life at a public university. Uh, up until that point, I was homeschooled and then uh, attended uh, mostly private schools and graduated from a private Christian school. I know that sounds, makes me sound super bougie, but that was just how my life went. Um, and so I was adjusting to, to public life at a, at a public uh, li- university, and I, little did I know that I would really be in, in for a bit of a rude awakening. And I'll never forget this class because uh, it had one of those professors who was smart, but almost too smart for his own good, where he was just kind of a little bit too full of himself. You might have had one of those teachers, right? And, uh, and I'll never forget, though, I was in, in the second week of class, and I, I was sitting there, and, uh, and he was teaching on some topic. I don't remember the topic, but I remember part of the way through his lecture, he makes this point, and he says, evolution is definitely true, which was not surprising for me to hear. But then he paused, and he, he said, and don't give me any of your Christian nonsense, he didn't use the word nonsense. He had much more colorful language. But he said, don't give me any of your Christian nonsense or you can get the heck out of my classroom. And I thought, oh, I'm in a whole different world right now. Um, And it was kind of my introduction, in a sense, to just life in a public university. And I would spend the next four plus years, because it takes us, some of us, a little longer than others to graduate, Um, I would spend the next four plus years uh, learning what it meant to really live as a Christian in an environment um, that that not only just tolerated Christianity, in fact, most of the time was dismissive towards it, saw it as nonsensical, that it had no place or role in academia, where it was often mocked or put down, um, and It was really a a challenging time in some ways for my faith, but a good time. It was a season in which God would use a lot of those experiences to ground me and give me roots and foundation for kind of the journey of following Jesus in life ahead. The reason I share that story with you this morning is that I think the American church finds itself currently in the middle of freshman cultural anthropology. You know, for much of our life in society, the American church uh, was very much welcomed within the public square and in the major places of society. Not only was it welcomed, it was often celebrated and it was seen as a key institution in how our culture and society 
function. But over the last several decades, and really due to the rise of pluralism and secular humanism in all aspects of our culture and nation, we have really seen a decline and really the tolerance of the American church. Almost 11 years ago now, which might seem dated, but I think it's important, Newsweek, in their Easter edition of their magazine, ran the cover story, The Decline and Fall of Christian America. They cited in that article several studies that showed that those who identified themselves as Christians were declining, and in fact, especially among younger generations, those that declared themselves either non-religious or nuns, was actually on the rise. Over the last 11 years since that article came out, statistics continue to bear time and time again that there are many who are stopping to identify themselves as Christians and merely embracing a life and worldview with no religious affiliation. And so Christianity, which once held a central place within our society, has effectively been moved to the margins in the public square. And it's not just that we've been moved to the margins. In fact, we're starting to see a rise where Christianity in its beliefs is often openly mocked and ridiculed. It's seen as lesser or a lesser belief than what our society holds dear and important. And we can talk about that in a lot of ways, but the point I make and want to make this morning is that I think oftentimes for many of us, this can be a very disorienting phenomenon because we've been used to operating in a culture that at worst tolerated Christianity and at best prized it. We can often find ourselves in kind of the cultural shift that we're experiencing, increasingly struggling with how we navigate a society that seems to be increasingly pluralistic and secular, and where oftentimes there is open hostility against people of faith. Often when we encounter this within ourselves and even within our communities, we tend to have kind of two primary responses. Some respond by fighting back against the cultural pressure and the cultural movement. We've seen for decades Christians that try to uh, engage the kind of culture through political battles or political fights or whatever it is to try to win back the culture, to kind of bring ourselves back into the center of the public square. One of the other responses, though, we see in our society is we see retreat, where Christian communities recognize that they are not welcome there, and so they retreat into themselves where we create our own institutions, our own communities, our own place. If we're not welcome, we'll just huddle amongst ourselves and kind of survive and avoid the active hostility. But what if God actually has an entirely other idea for what it means to be in a church or what it means to be the church in a world that is increasingly intolerant? And not only what if God doesn't just have a different idea. What if God has actually designed his church to be the sort of community that thrives in that place, that actually thrives in the margins of society, that doesn't retreat or fight, but instead lives as a countercultural community, firm 
in its beliefs and what it holds true, yet loving in its response to those around us. What would it look like to be that sort of church? Well, the good news is that I think we can learn together what it means to be that sort of community. And the book of 1 Peter is essentially written originally to a church, to in a set of churches, to encourage it to be just that, to be the sort of church that thrives in a potentially hostile and intolerant society. You can actually see this at the very beginning of how the letter opens. Look with me at verse 1. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter was one of the chief apostles that followed Jesus. Upon his death, he announced the reality of his death and resurrection and what it meant for the world and worked to lead the church in its early days. But Peter writes to a certain group of people. He says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, all those names were regions that were in what is now modern-day Turkey. But what I want you to notice in that verse is how Peter labels the people that he's writing to. He says, to those who are elect exiles. If you have a Bible, you should underline those two words because in many ways, in those two words, we find kind of Peter's key vision for who the church is and, and in some ways how it's called to be. They can seem kind of like an oxymoron, elect exiles, but on one hand, Peter sees the church as elect, as God's people redeemed by him from the foundation of the world. In fact, in verse 2, he'll go on to use these phrases from the Old Testament reminding the church of its covenant relationship with God, that the church is in fact elect, chosen by God for his purposes. But he pairs that with the word exile. Or another word, way we might translate it is resident alien. Someone who is from another country that is in fact living in a country that is not theirs. Peter essentially then sees the church as this. We actually see a second clue to that in his word, the dispersion. And some of your translations might have the technical term, which is diaspora. It was a term that was first used of the Jews when they were taken into exile in Babylon from their homeland, and then that the Jews that would scatter amongst that region would be referred as the diaspora. And Peter uses this term now to refer to the church, that the church on one hand is God's covenant people, but on the other hand, they live as resident aliens. They live in a country or a place, the world that is not their home. And so the church has to figure out how to be God's people in a place where they essentially are exiles. And that's what the book of 1 Peter points us towards. And it's what we're going to really look at over the next seven weeks as we learn together what it means for the church of Jesus Christ to be unshakable, to be the sort of community that can stand in the midst of intolerance and hostility on the truths of Christ and be a witness to the world around it. And I'm really excited for us to learn and kind of jump into it together. But this morning, we're going to kind of jump in. That was just the, the warm-up. We're just kind of jumping in to verses 3 through 12. And kind of, this is Peter's introduction in many ways to the letter and kind of sets the tone and vision for who God has created and designed us to be. So this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 12. And 
Actually, in the original language, those verses are all one sentence, but they kind of break up naturally into three subsections, and we're going to kind of unpack each of those subsections together. So let's kind of look at the first one in verse 3, and we'll kind of start to see Peter's main first idea emerge. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter begins essentially his section with, A statement of praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he begins to call his recipients to bring God praise, to bless him. For what? Well, essentially in the passage, he's going to unpack three ideas of how we can praise God. The first thing that Peter wants us to praise God for, as we see in this verse, is we can praise God that heaven is secure. And when we use that phrase, heaven, maybe another way that you could say it is praise God that our salvation is secure. Right? That's essentially what he says. We're to bless God. Why? Or what? For what? According to his great mercy. We just celebrated our God is a God of mercy. But here's the main idea. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. See, the reality for Peter is one of the reasons we can praise God is that when we trust in him, God actually gives us new birth. That he causes us to be reborn from death to life. To be brought into a new life-giving relationship with him. And Peter says, blessed be God. Why? Because he's caused us to be born again. This is one of the key understandings of salvation in Christianity, that when you trust in Jesus, you are in fact reborn. Jesus would actually highlight the importance of this in John 3.3 in his conversation with Nicodemus when he would say, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's the nature of, really of understanding salvation, that when you encounter Jesus and you put your faith in him, you're reborn, you're made new, you're given new desires, a new life, a new really everything. Peter wants to highlight in here two things that we get in God causing us to be born again. Look, the first one he writes, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. One of the things we receive from God is we get a new hope in Christ. I want you to hold on to that phrase because we're actually going to come back to it a little bit later in our teaching. In verse 4, he gives us then the second thing that we are given that's new to us, that we receive, or that that we're born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. You feel the emphasis there. He wants to see this is not a temporary inheritance that you receive, This is a glorious inheritance that cannot be uh, taken away, that does not fade, that cannot be ruined, and that it's kept in heaven for you. Heaven is where God is. That's the idea of what heaven, it's God's reality and God's space. 
that is kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter wants us to see that we can praise God because when we trust in him, God causes us to be born again in such a way that we receive such an inheritance from him that's amazing and incredible, but that God actually actively guards us and keeps us in our faith in order to receive the inheritance that is promised. That you and I, if we have genuinely put our faith in Jesus and been born again, are secure in that salvation because God is actively keeping us in it through faith to receive what he has promised. This, I think, is one of the key doctrines of our faith that we need to understand. Theologians throughout the year have referred to this idea or this truth as the perseverance of the saints. And we see it here, but we also see it throughout Scripture. And it's the simple idea that those whom God saves, God will keep and they will persevere to the end, such that they will receive the glorious inheritance that he has achieved for them. The great Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way, and I want you to see it because I think these are some key words and concepts, when it says, They whom God has accepted in his beloved, in Jesus, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. The idea here is that those whom God saves, he keeps and will keep until they experience the fullness of their salvation in Christ's return. Now what this does not mean is that we will not experience trials in our faith. There will not be times where we doubt or struggle or sin or grieve God's heart. But what it does mean is that those whom God saves, he saves to the uttermost. And that's what Peter reminds us of. That it is God who saves in his graciousness, who causes us to be born again, according to verse 3. God causes us to be born again. Let us be clear, Christian, if you have experienced that salvation, it is not of yourself. It is God who willed to grant you the faith that you should trust him and experience rebirth. And because it is God who has saved you, it is God who will keep you, who will guard you, who will protect you in that faith until you receive that glorious inheritance fully and finally in Christ's return. And we then are secure and can be secure in our salvation. How do we know? Because God keeps us in our faith. If your faith is in Jesus today, I don't mean you prayed a prayer once. I don't mean you walked an aisle at some time. What I mean is, if you've put your faith in Jesus and that faith is active within your heart, continuing to trust him as your Savior and Lord, then you can rest secure that God is securing you and that he will guard you where that faith is genuine. Oftentimes, we can be caused to doubt our salvation. We can struggle with assurance, but what this verse reminds us is we can praise God that our salvation is ultimately secure in him. So if you've made that step, rest in that. If you have not made that step, God invites you this morning to put your faith in him, 
to trust in Jesus' death and resurrection on your behalf and to experience that new birth and new life that he has for you. But Peter continues on in how we can experience or how we can continue to praise God. Look at verse 6. In this you rejoice. What's in this? In what he has just revealed in verses 3 through 5. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The second thing that Peter calls us to be able to praise God for is we can praise God that suffering reveals our faith. Peter does not think of faith in Jesus apart from the experience of suffering and trials. I think one of the great things and reality of the Christian faith is that, is that it does not avoid the suffering and struggle that many of us experience in our lives. And Peter doesn't do that here as well. You can hear the response. Okay, I praise God for my salvation. I praise God that I'm secure. But what about right now? Because life sure seems to stink where I'm at. And as these Christians were continuing to face persecution and intolerance, you know these communities are struggling. That's great that I inheritance is secure one day, but what do you have for me right now in the midst of the suffering that I'm facing? And what Peter offers to us is not happy, clappy Christianity, that everything when we trust in Jesus just suddenly gets better and life is so much easier. No, but what he reminds us of is that in, when we put our faith in Jesus, that when we experience that suffering, it not only reveals our faith, but it can refine it even to the point of joy. Make no mistake, follower of Jesus. You will face suffering in your life. Jesus promised it to his people. In John 15, in his last teaching before the cross, Jesus said to his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And then later in that same teaching, he would say, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. Or some translations will say, in the world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus promised that you and I and those who would follow him will experience suffering. We will experience opposition. Make no mistake, the world in its core cultural values, in what it highlights, is opposed to Jesus and his kingdom. That's why they killed him on a cross, because they did not want to receive what he came to bring. And so we cannot fool ourselves 
thinking that Christians somehow are to occupy some prized space in society when Jesus promised we would be on the margins. He promised they would be opposed to us. And when they don't oppose us, it's likely because we look more like the world than we look like the kingdom. Because if we look like the kingdom, they can't help but oppose us because they reject our king. But the reality is that in those places, and when we have tribulation and trouble, God works in those moments to produce in us a sort of faith that is unshakable. A sort of faith that can stand strong in the midst of any trial. Because the reality is, and what Peter reminds us of here, is that suffering, suffering refines and reveals our faith in Christ. Listen, you cannot experience suffering and stay neutral. It's the reality of suffering. You will either increase in faith when you experience suffering, or you will decrease in faith. It will either reveal what you truly trust in, what truly is your foundation, what you genuinely believe, or it will expose your lack of belief. Suffering is not a neutral entity, and it's why when we experience it as Christians, even in its most heinous places, we can take heart because we know that it's through suffering that God works to refine our faith and ultimately produce joy. I love in verse 7 where he says this, that tested genuineness of your faith may be, results, may be found to result. So when you're in that place, when your faith is exposed to the trials of suffering or the opposition of the world, in whatever way it comes, where it is genuine, it will result in praise, in glory, and honor. It will expose, as verse 8, your belief in him and the rejoicing with joy that will come that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You see, we can praise God when we encounter suffering because we know that it's through enduring in the face of suffering and trials that he uses it to produce in us worship, glory, joy. The truth and reality of hope in the Christian life is that it's not absent from suffering, but it's actually hope in the midst of suffering that is power. It is when people see your faith in the midst of suffering that it shows them the truth of what you believe and the glory of your King. And it's why we can praise God that our suffering reveals our faith and results in our joy. Finally, Peter gives us the last thing that we can praise God for in verse 10. We can praise God for salvation. Look at what he says. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicated the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So Peter says, he says, concerning this salvation, this work that God does in you, he says, listen, the prophets, those that came before Christ, that guided God's people, they searched and inquired, waiting, when is this going to come? How is it going to come? 
Where is God going to reveal his promised Messiah that will suffer on behalf of the people and usher in God's kingdom? And what Peter essentially says is, praise God because that's been revealed to you. The good news of the promised anointed king and his death and resurrection has been announced to you in the work of Jesus Christ. And that we can praise God that salvation has come. That we as the church have received the good news of Jesus. That though God created the world and designed it to be a perfect place where we would flourish in relationship with him and one another and creation that humanity fell into rebellion by the first sin of Adam and Eve, but even by our own sin today, that we continue to rebel against God's word and we continue to rebel against God's way. And because of that, the world stands broken and condemned and we ourselves stand under judgment. But the promise of the Old Testament is that God would send an anointed king that would come and suffer on behalf of his people and the world to take the sin that we have have done upon himself, pay its penalty, and then conquer death, flip it on its head so he could bring new life and a new kingdom to bear on this world where justice and righteousness will reign for eternity. And what Peter reminds us is that has been announced to the church, and we can praise God that salvation is here, and it is here in Jesus Christ. And we can stand unshakable because of what he has done but what's the key for all of this you might say great we're called to praise god that our inheritance is secure and to praise god in suffering to praise god for salvation but what does that actually look like how does that actually help us live the sort of unshakable lives we desire today. Well, I think Peter actually gives us the key in verse 3, if you go back and look. He says again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again, here I think is the key phrase, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, what Peter wants to remind us of today, and this is kind of the idea I want you to walk away with from this text, is that Jesus is our living hope. It's Jesus that lets us know that our salvation is secure. It's Jesus that brings meaning to our suffering and to whatever you might be facing in your life today. It's Jesus that brings salvation. It's Jesus who makes those things a reality so that we can stand unshakable. Jesus is our living hope. You see, I think all of us wish for a better world. All of us, not just here, but even in our society around us, we wish for things to change. We wish for justice to come. We wish for our shame and guilt to be dealt with. We wish for relationships in our family to be reconciled. We wish for things to get better, not worse. We wish that we can find cures for the diseases that we face. 
But the reality that Peter wants us to remind us and why we can be unshakable as a community is that in Christ, our wishes have turned to hope. You know there's a difference between wishes and hope, right? It's in the expectation of the outcome. It's birthday season in my house. Well, October really is. And every year, my son, for his birthday in October, he has lots of wishes. But I'm not always sure how much they are based in reality. And so the work of birthday season is to encourage and remind our, my son, let's hope for some things. Let's not just wish for the moon. See, the reality that we've experienced for us is that because of Jesus, the wishes that we have, the wishes for new life, the wishes for suffering to matter and not be meaningless, the wishing that we have for salvation for us, but not just us, for the whole world, that in Jesus, those things have moved from wishes to hope. Maybe I can illustrate it this way for you. I've suffered the majority of my life as a Cleveland sports fan. It's a cross I have to bear. For those of you that are, might be unaware of Cleveland sports, Cleveland sports franchises historically are the dregs of professional sports. And they have a history of always coming close and then finding some way to blow it. We're the only Major League Baseball team that's lost the World Series in Game 7, in extra innings, twice. And so for much of my life, I have wished, wished that Cleveland would win a championship. I'll take anything. And I'll never forget, in 2014, just like every year before it, I once again entered that year wishing Cleveland would experience a championship. But the Indians were okay, the Cavs were terrible, and the Browns were the Browns. So at that point, it was just a wish. But on July 11th, 2014, my wishes changed. I was sitting in my office, I clicked on my web browser, it took me to sportsillustrated.com, and there was the lead article with the face of everyone's favorite athlete in Cleveland, LeBron James, with the simple title, I'm Coming Home. Oh man, I was ecstatic. We all were. Because in that moment, our wishes moved to hope. Because the best basketball player, arguably in the history of basketball, was returning to our city and our team. And so what was, once was a wish suddenly had an anchor point. It suddenly had hope. It suddenly was based in reality. And two years later, in 2016, I would experience that reality come to fruition when Cleveland won its first championship. You see, you and I, we have all these sorts of wishes, all these sorts of desires. God, can you make our world better? Can you do something about COVID and the disease and cancer and all the things that we see? Can you bring justice? Can you fix the problems? 
We all have wishes, but the truth of the Christian life is that our wishes have moved to hope because 2,000 years ago, on the third day, Jesus came out of the tomb and he anchored our wishes in reality and said, you have hope because I defeated death, I defeated sin, I brought justice, I'm bringing righteousness, and one day you will see the greatest championship you will ever see when I return to establish my kingdom fully and finally. And so this morning, God wants to change your, your wishes into hope. He wants to see those things that you desire that he's placed in you for your life to change, for your world to get better, to be anchored in the resurrection of the Son of God. Because when you have hope, you're unshakable. So this morning, if you're in that place, where maybe life has beaten you down. Maybe things are hard. Maybe you're in that place of suffering this morning. I want to encourage you. Look to the resurrection of Jesus. The Christian faith is not built on some fantasy and wishful thinking. It is built on a real person who suffered a real death who really rose from the dead in real history and changed everything. And it's that that's the anchor point that brings hope in no matter what you face. And it's that that God wants to encourage you this morning. If he can raise Jesus from the dead, what can he do in your life? What can he do in your community? What can he do in Farmington Hills? What can he do in this world? He can do everything in Jesus. So I want to take a moment and just pray for you this morning. So would you pray with me? Lord God, we stop for a moment and we say thank you. Thank you that you saw fit to send your son to take on flesh to live a life of suffering and then embrace the ultimate suffering on the cross. But we thank you this morning that that cross wasn't the end of the story. That all you, though you dealt with sin and death in that moment, Jesus, that you rose from the dead. You conquered that grave. You announced a new kingdom. God, thank you this morning that our hope is not wishful thinking. Our hope is a living hope because we have a Savior who's alive this morning, who isn't dead, who's risen from the dead, and therefore we can know that you are raising us that we'll receive that glorious inheritance one day. God, I pray for all those this morning that come in carrying burdens, wishes, all of that. I pray right now while we sing this final song, would you fill our minds and our hearts with the truth of the resurrection of Jesus? Would you let us look to him and in that, God, would you increase our faith? Help us to trust more deeply in you. Would you let us leave here with a renewed hope, a renewed spirit, renewed power? And we ask for it because we know you provide it. Would you move now? We just continue to worship you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray.
Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.